Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I am your host, Tariq El Amin, and you can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Use that same username to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast at. Uh, we are on SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, tune in just about any platform you'll find us at that same username at radio Islam usa so take a moment to subscribe rate review and most importantly do not forget to share we'd like to thank our sponsor before we begin recycle processes thank you for your continued support as well as that of ciogc that's the council of islamic organizations of greater chicagoland and you can get more information about the great work that they do at www.ciogc.org all right, family, I'm happy to have joining me on the line, Rakib Hamid Naik. He is a Kashmiri journalist working as an international correspondent with the U.S.-based The Globe Post. His primary focus is uh, conflict and human rights with more than five years of reporting experience in Kashmir and New Delhi and on various human rights abuses by the Indian state in Kashmir. He's also reported on Indian minorities and marginalized communities from other Indian states, and his reports have been published by various national and international publications, including TRT World, The Defense Post, The Third Pole, Doha Center for Media Freedom, and The Wire. We are happy to welcome you to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm glad that we're able to catch up with you uh, while you are in town. Uh, you were here for a recent event uh, that was related to bringing relief to Kashmir. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes, uh, I was uh, I was actually invited by Indian Muslims Relief and Charities, a California-based charity group. So there was an event on Sunday. So I was uh, I mostly spoke about what is actually happening on the ground in India right now, mm-hmm. and what is yeah specifically focusing on what ha- has been happening in Kashmir for the last five months. Okay, so yeah, that kind of uh, brings us uh, into conversation about the uh, I guess the repeal, the the scrapping of Article Three Seventy, and that basically insulated <coughs> Kashmir right from the effects of any number of laws that were passed by Indian Parliament. And it allowed Kashmir to have its own separate constitution, its own uh, flag. What have we seen happen since then? Uh, actually, on August 5th, uh, India rescinded Kashmir's special status, that is Article 370, mm-hmm. and ultimately read down Article 35A of the Indian Constitution as well. That actually granted uh, state domicile, like, you know, uh, they had state uh, citizenship as well, and then they were Indian citizens as well. So the thing was, like, they had special land rights and special rights when it comes to education and employment. But with this uh, move, the Indian government rescinded everything. So, yeah, and since then, um, the whole valley is under lockdown. Mm-hmm. People are not allowed to come out. There is huge military presence in the region. There is communication blockade going on in which was actually partially lifted, but still, most of the valley is still without phones because prepaid cell phones are not still working and internet is shut down for the straight fifth month. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, we've had the opportunity to talk with uh, scholars and activists uh, with regard to uh, Kashmir in, in the in the recent, um, recent months, I would say. Uh, and one of the things that keeps coming up is the 
human rights violations that are taking place, uh, that have been taking place. Have those escalated since uh, since August? And could for those who are listening right now, and maybe this is their first introduction uh, to the uh, circumstances in Kashmir, could you talk a bit about that? Yep. Uh, Post-August 5th, the lockdown is unprecedented, but the human rights violations that have happened post-August 5th, I would tell you what people what people across the world have seen post-August 5th is just the tip of the iceberg. Kashmiris have been always suffering. For the last three decades, we have seen worst, worst atrocities committed by the Indian Army in the region. But post-5th, um, um, Indian government has been trying to prove time and again that everything is normal in there. But let me tell you, nothing is normal on the ground. I have lived there all the time and all these things were happening. We got Indian security forces were responsible for killing off at least five people since August 5th. And they're claiming that they didn't even fire a single bullet. There were protests where many people got injured. They had bullet injuries, pellet injuries. So, yep. And apart from that, uh, nearly more than 10,000 people have been picked up by the Indian security forces who have been kept in various jails in the states mm-hmm. and jails across uh, the Indian mainland. So they, have, they were picked during the night raids and they are kept in detention without any charges or trial. And they actually don't have any charges against them. The only apprehension Indian security forces uh, have is that these people can, you know, come on the roads and protest Again, it's the Indian rule and the recent decision Indian government has taken with regard to uh, the state, with regard to the state of Jammu and Kashmir, without actually taking the consent of the people. So, yep. And along with that, because we were able to reach out to a lot of people who were in detention, right. and we were actually we actually met a few um, people who were actually, who were actually minors. And those miners, they were picked up from homes and captain, uh, like police station, and they were like traded like commodity between different police stations. And ultimately, when they were released, and before release, even when they were in police station, they were tortured, they were kept naked for days, and some of them they were like forced to stay. They were like locked in for like seven days, and some they were locked in for like 30 to 60 days. Mm-hmm. And when they were released, they were released. Uh, only with a condition that they will have to come uh, to police station every morning to sign an attendance register. So every morning they had to go there. If they don't go there, they'll be probably picked again. So, and this yes. is this is after being picked up uh, without yes. committing any any crime, just picked up, and then enduring in many cases, many reported cases, uh, being tortured. Uh, they are being asked to once they've been released to show back up to the same people who have who have uh, tortured them. Is, yeah, is of, that course, basically? of course. Of course, wow. of course, wow. of course, yeah. Uh, but, uh, see, the torture is one thing. The other thing is that you're actually like, you know, um, you know, the torture thing that is very severe. Like most of the cases mm-hmm. in Kashmir, it's pretty normal. Like if you ask me, like if I, the police take me in and if I come out and people like out, they don't expect me not get tortured and they will say okay this happens with everyone so this has been normalized like you know you cannot come out of police station or these army camps without getting tortured if they pick you up 
So it's pretty obvious when they're going to, and they keep you in very subhuman conditions. Like one miner, he told us, um, a group of journalists who were reporting with me that they were kept um, um, with other 15 miners inside a small um, cell, lockup. So this was happening, and they were kept with adults as well in some cases. And we, I have pictures as well, like, you know, a picture we got from one of the journalist friends who actually was able to get in a police station in Bandipura. The three miners were locked up, and Indian government for long has been maintaining that it didn't pick up any minor. And later on, when it uh, did acknowledge that it has picked up nearly 140 minors, but they were subsequently released within a day or so. But we have proof that proves otherwise. Mm-hmm. So aside from being a, being able to, which is uh, being able to report these events is extremely important uh, that folks who don't have the ability to communicate because of those, that communication blockade, that blackout, uh, that's extremely important. What are the, some of the things that, uh, that, that Kashmiris are being able to do to, um, uh, to resist, you know, how is their resistance manifesting uh, right now in a land that has been occupied militarily for, you know, since what, 48, I believe? Yep, yep, yes, sir. So, yeah, so one thing that uh, right now what Kashmiri people are doing, see, all, most of the people, because like there is a fear ruling in the minds of Kashmiris right now because India has lockdown on the region. With this lockdown, communication blockade, this heavy militarization of the region, they just want to give one message to the Kashmiris, that if you speak up, we know how to shut you up, right? Mm-hmm. So the fear is right now ruling in the minds of the Kashmiris that Indian government can go to can go up to any extent to stifle their voices, stifle their peaceful voices, because no one is allowed to protest in the region, right? And no one. Few women who tried to come out in Srinagar to protest, they were picked up and put in jail. They were just few women. Right. And Indian cities even like, you know, afraid of women coming down to the peaceful parade for the peaceful protest. Like, you know, they were holding play cards against the Indian government's move of rescinding Article three seventy, but Indian government is even afraid of having women protesting against them. And the other people uh, in village because they ha- as they have picked like, you know, they just want to create an example out of like, you know, putting picking these people and putting them in jail. So everyone is afraid as of now to come on the road because they fear that Indian security forces might pick them up and then throw them in jail. Um, you know, they are mostly transporting many of the prisoners to jails outside the state. So um, denying their families any chance to meet them. And the other thing is right now in the valley, as I'm talking, there is a civil disobedience movement going on. Mm-hmm. Everyone is participating that in that moment. People usually don't keep their shops, business establishment open for the whole day because Indian uh, media uh, that time and again has used, like, you know, people resuming their normal lives as a propaganda tool to promote that everything is normal in the valley. So what people are doing is people are uh, just opening their shops like for a few hours in the morning and then a few hours during the evening for the whole day, they keep it shut. So to give a message that, yes, they are protesting, but yes, silently this time. So there is civil curfew during the day as well. People do not venture out because um, uh, they just don't want to give an impression that everything is normal in there. So yes. When you mentioned about trying to intimidate the uh, Kashmiri people, uh, the Indian government trying to intimidate them, uh, you covered the heinous 
an absolutely unbelievable murder of an eight-year-old, Asifa. Um, yes. Um, and how, in your reporting, it, you know, to talk about some of the things that came out of that that shows how that this was connected to, it was not a simple, it was not a random event, but that it served kind of the purpose to instill a fear uh, into uh, into the Muslim community in particular. Yes, uh, it actually started post-2014 when BJP came to power, but they've been doing, uh, the RSS has been active, the Rashtriya, Swam Sevak, Sang, the Ideologue, yeah. Bharatiya Janta Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been working in uh, Jammu, doing actually in Jammu and Kashmir, for like last eight decades. It formed its first base in Jammu in 1939. It has been long been working in the region, but post 2014, um, things have been happening at a very faster pace. Uh, along with the Indian uh, security forces, Indian atrocities in the region, the RSS has uh, has been upping its presence and creating a communal wedge between the communities in the Jammu region where there are Muslims and Hindus living together, like not in Kashmir where Muslims are in majority. So what they are doing is actually um, this whole agenda of the Indian government with reading down Article 370 is to change the demography of the region, right? To like, you know, change the demography of the region because they have already been doing it since last eight decades eight decades as i told you in 1947 there was a major riot in like a major massacre in jammu region where nearly 500,000 muslims were massacred and when in most many districts where muslims were had a very huge presence right now they're in like two percent like between one to ten percent so with um, the Asifa case, what these guys in Katua tried to do, they were actually the RSS workers as well. So what they got, tried to do is they actually tried to intimidate a community, Muslim community, so that they would leave that place and move to some other place, right, you know, to actually create their own Hindu settlements, right? So that was actually a message to every Muslim community in the region that you behave or you uh, actually... you. Uh, remain limited into your own like regions like let's say muslims kashmir you only have to like you know mm-hmm. uh kashmir uh, as a place where you can buy property or so so that was also the message and there were some uh, there were some police officers that were involved in this too right yes of course police officers it was a whole big nexus you need to understand that uh, the rss network is not only just limited to People who are actually volunteering for that, it's actually an ideology, and anyone can get infested with this ideology, either be it a police officer, a bureaucrat, politician, or anyone. Right, right. Um, when you talk about some of the minority communities uh, in India, um, how are they responding, or are they responding to the aggression towards uh, the Muslim minority? Uh, is there any sense of a of, of, a, of kind of a, a shared representation, a coalition building, you know, in terms of, um, you know, banding together? Mm, yep. Um, I would say, like, for long, there has been uh, silence on what is, because, see, what has been happening in the Indian mainland right now, again, is the Citizenship Amendment Bill. Everyone came together to protest uh, what was happening with the people, with the students in, what happened with people, students in Jamia Mila Islamia. But Kashmir has seen the worst. And uh, for post-August 5th, we don't see those kind of rallies being organized for us or 
their leaders speaking up for us, like, you know. So actually, what is happening in the valley has been normalized, like, okay, this is normal with the people. They are used to this kind of living, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the support from India. But lately, there has been, like, what else um, from the left groups, from the down south and Muslim groups down south, they have actually supported the Indian Muslim minority groups down south. They have uh, raised their voice against the Indian aggression in the valley. Yep. Okay. So um, internationally, if I'm looking right here, obviously there is a, a sense of urgency here. You know, you were here for a relief event. Um, uh, and then I also think about the work going on uh, that uh, Sound Vision is involved in. Uh, as far as yep. the free Kashmir, you know, free uh, Kashmir um, uh, effort, uh, how widespread is that support um, in, in terms of the U.S. Uh, Muslim community? Um, I've been able to, uh, like, I arrived here last month and I spoke at nearly maybe 10 events till now. And I see that a lot of people are actually taking interest um, um, when it comes to, like, you know, understanding the conflict in Kashmir. Mm-hmm. And it has been mostly possible after the August 5th when Kashmir rose to prominence, like international media got their attention back on the valley. So a lot of people are actually taking interest. And in the events where I was, where I spoke, a lot of Muslim community members, they were from diverse racial ethnic backgrounds, Indian Muslims, Pakistanis, from Arab world and yeah, other countries as well. So they were actually mostly asking about what they can do to um, support the Kashmiri cause, right? Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of people are actually want to help Kashmiri people for their genuine demands and to end uh, Indian atrocities in the region. And for that, they are they cannot just directly come to Kashmir and help people there or do that in India. Of course, they had to do here in the States. And they are mostly uh, concerned about, like, you know, advocacy work. They're actually mostly about, like, you know, how they can push the United States government to take some measures that would ease up restrictions, I believe, for now mm-hmm. and for longer term to have some proper channel through which they can keep pushing the Indian government to resolve this issue once for all. How close are we or are we, are we already past that point of, of this being uh, looked at or seen as a genocide? I uh, On December 11th, uh, we, I, IAMC, Indian American Muslim Council, organized a congressional briefing, and I was part of that. And I had a chance to meet Professor Gregory Stanton, mm-hmm. who actually came up uh, with his 10-step genocide guide. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, in India, in Assam, actually, where the NRC exercise started, we are mm-hmm. two steps away from genocide. And in Kashmir, we are already at the 10th stage, uh, so the uh, actually this stage this is like a 10 step model that starts from classification symbolization discrimination dehumanization organization polarization preparation persecution extermination and denial mm. so in assam we are at the stage of persecution okay. and now with this cab and nrc being implemented across the india so we can say indian muslims are at the eighth stage across the country that is persecution and in kashmir we are uh, actually 
uh, switching between three um, um, three three steps uh, during the last three decades. That is persecution, extermination, denial. And right now in Kashmir, we are at the tenth stage. That is denial. So like Modi came to Houston and he said in eight different languages, everything is normal in India. That was actually referred in most of uh, his talk. He was referring to Kashmir. So right. he actually like you know denying everything is normal in Valley, but the fact is nothing is normal there. People they are suffering. Their healthcare, education, their jobs, employment, economy, every their human rights, everything has been trampled and affected by the Indian government aggression in the valley. So we've seen a, a continued uh, and a persistent uh, resistance uh, by Kashmiris. Um, but what is it going to take as far as external pressure? Because I would imagine most folks that are looking at this, they see that there's going to have to be some type of an intervention to bring an end to the um, to these atrocities. How does that look to you? How do you see that intervention playing out? Who is going to have to take the lead on that? The United States has to take the lead because it's the leader of democracies in the world. But the other thing is what the United States over the decades has been doing is prioritizing its economic interest mm. and trying to win its democratic values. It, it usually boasts soft, uh, you know, whenever it comes to Indian, Indian U.S. relations, it says that it has a shared value. What are those shared values? Actually, democratic values, right? Right. But when they talk about human rights on the one side, and on the other side, they keep doing deals. They keep inviting these leaders. They go and attended like the president of the United States, Donald Trump, went and like you know when whole Kashmiri was, Kashmir was under siege. Kashmiri's rights were trampled. They were being tortured. They were being detained. He went there, and you know mm-hmm. went there and became the part of the very same rally, you know. Right. And that was actually the endorsement of Modi's human rights, Modi government's human rights violations in the valley. So. The United States has to take the high moral ground mm. and prioritize democratic values, human rights of the people, about the economic interests. And we know that India is a very big market that U.S. Uh, would like to tap in, and it because it has a lot of business interests there. So right now, because what has happened over the past five months, we haven't seen any ray of light because. U.S. government hasn't taken any strong position. Like, if they can impose restriction on Iranian uh, information minister for mm. blocking the internet, why can't they do the very same thing with the Indian government? Right. Let it be Amit Shah, be Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Why cannot they do the same with them? When they can raise their concern about um, atrocities happening with Uyghurs in China, why cannot they do the same with uh, India, in Kashmir, mm-hmm. right? So these are the, the questions. These are very serious questions that we need to understand. We need to answer. The people in the states need to answer, and need to push their government towards um, easing, towards helping the Kashmir people. Yes. Uh, when I'm when I'm thinking about you know transparency, that's one thing that when atrocities are taking place, nations do not want transparency. You know, obviously, you know, you look yep. at there's there's a communication blockade. The fact that you 
have been covering these uh, violations, these atrocities, you know, for over five years now, right? Um, yep. How has that impacted your own, or has that impacted your own safety? Yeah, it's just not me. There are more than, you know, more than 1,000 journalists who are working across the uh, region uh, and covering Indian atrocities in the region. Not me, everyone's security. We have seen our journalists, friends, die, our journalist colleagues die while covering um, um, the conflict in the valley. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and we never know like who is going to hit us. Because we are actually working in, uh, we had to maintain such a, uh, like we had to walk through such a thin line that like, you know, we we would never like to offend because whenever we are, because there are different sides involved in this conflict, mm-hmm. right? And we had to walk through such a thin line that uh, we need to be really careful about, like, we are writing and who uh, is going to be hurt by, you know, what we are reporting from the valley. Right. So, yeah. Um, but, um, like, it is, I think, right now in the world, if there is any place among those dangerous places for journalists, it is Kashmir, Kashmir as well. Yesterday only, one of our friends, uh, he works with the print. His name is Azan Javid. He was beaten up by the security forces while he was covering a protest. He was beaten up by the senior officer. Mm. Another journalist with the news click, Anis Sargas, he was also beaten up just for doing his job. And I have seen, like, you know, many, one of our colleagues, he was injured back in 2016. He was shot with pellets. He lost both of his eyes. Mm. So, and the Indian security uh, agencies, and the Indian government agencies, the intelligence agencies, they usually track our... Uh, like you know what we are doing, like maybe they they must be monitoring our calls as well. You know, never know because like in a conflict zone like Kashmir, where they are very careful about like what information should go out to the world. Mm-hmm. So in that scenario, they're actually tracking and um, every moment of the journalists who are working there. So yep. Mm. So does that spot. does that yep. deepen your uh, and all of you, I would imagine, I guess I'm asking you, I would imagine that those other journalists, you said it's about a thousand of you, um, are you more emboldened? Are you more, does does that resistance make you feel, uh, I guess, the weight of the importance of the work that you're doing uh, and to continue doing it? We, our community, we are raised in fast we stand for we are journalists who believe in ethical journalism. Mm-hmm. We report conflict from Kashmir objectively. So we have been doing that for pretty long, and we are steadfast on our stand to tell the stories of people in Kashmir who have been enduring atrocities by the Indian state over the last three decades. We are steadfast on that, and we will keep doing it. And no matter what comes, because we have seen, as I told you, our friends were injured. They are like, after they get injured, they're back on the field other day. Some, like our friend who received pellet injuries, he's back in the field working again. Right? Mm. So we are pretty much steadfast on our stand, and we will keep covering conflict objectively. Inshallah. 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 Well, Rocky, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and 
definitely pray for your uh, continued uh, safety and your well-being and for the, the for the well-being and, and resolution for all those who are enduring uh, this oppression and these atrocities, you know, in the Kashmir. Uh, so may uh, inshallah Allah brings uh, an end to that. So thank you so I mean, much. I mean, thank you so much. Uh, before before you go, you. would you, um, uh, I, I assume you're active on Twitter. Uh, if the listeners would like to keep up with you and follow your work, um, do you, uh, would you like to share your Twitter uh, handle? Yeah, sure. Uh, my Twitter handle is R A. Q-I-B underscore N-A-I-K. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. All right, Radio Slime family. We thank you all for for joining us. Uh, That was our guest, uh, journalist, Rakib Hamid Naik. uh, And you can follow his work. Just Google him. It's just, there's a trove of, of, uh, of information that he has shared uh, and continues to share. So uh, I am your host and producer, Tariq Alamine. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. With that, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.